Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We have been studying all summer the, the attributes of the Bible that give us hope and comfort and contentment and satisfaction and help and aid and authority and guidance and regulation. And what I want to do over the next three weeks is kind of apply it, put it all together. We'll be back in our study of Mark in August, but this is a a perfect time for us to look at what we've studied about the Bible and its application and say, so what? So what? This is a passage that we've looked at briefly. Uh, Dr. Strand did this for us in part a few weeks ago. I'm going to use a little bit of what he talked about and extend it on a little further. Let me read the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, okay? Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now... For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the king, to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. As also the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at the time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. It was a 2,000 mile journey by foot, horseback, boat, and barge, ultimately, ultimately looking for the source of the Missouri River. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were planning on this, planning to do this great adventure, the Lewis and Clark expedition, in 1804. And the journey was not by trail. 
not by road, not by freeway or interstate. It was completely forging their way. It was through harsh, untamed American wilderness from St. Louis to the mouth of the Columbia River. Now, their expectations were both realistic and fantastical. They were not sure what was ahead of them. Rumor has it that they were actually looking for dinosaurs along the way. The main issue of this trip was, was provisions. How could they take enough for this multi-year trip? They couldn't take everything with them, which means they would have to continually be reloading their supplies as they, as they explored. They had to feed the party of explorers that ranged from 33 to 45 people. There was no refrigeration, few opportunities to pick up goods, no stores, and limited amount of space. Those men went two years, and they couldn't take two years of food with them. They went through some of the hardest, most harsh conditions, geographically and in weather, that are a threat in the United States of America. They had to work really hard for their food. With all their planning, with all their packing, it was game and fish that they would spend most of their time actually trying to find so they could eat during their winter camp at Fort Madden near the Knife River of, uh, of, the nor of North Dakota. They, they detailed their daily diet in a diary to feed the men about 45 at that time. It took a full-grown buffalo, an elk, or an elk, or a bear, or four deer each day. Now, to properly supply for this journey, Lewis and Clark had to be supplied with provisions at the beginning and also know how to resupply themselves as they went. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this almost as an analogy. You have been given everything you need to grow in Christ, but it also takes continual resupplying of what you need. We're on our way to heaven as Christians. We're on a journey, and it's far different than a 2,000-mile walk. It is done by foot, though, by analogy. Look for a moment back at verses 10 and 11. I want to give you kind of a theme that we're going to look at in these next three weeks. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things. Here it is. You will never stumble. What is he talking about? Walking and falling? No, he's using that as an analogy, as a metaphor for the Christian life that is intended to be walked and trotting, staying on your feet. But he says you will never stumble it actually, actually suggests the possibility that we might fall, that we might stumble. It's a real possibility. Tripping over sin, losing perspective about eternity and doubting the things that are true about God and faith. There are so many obstacles that could make us turn an ankle or break a leg or fall on our faces as a Christian. Living as a Christian is really about being sure-footed. 
So what we're going to look at is a sure-footed walk with the Savior. How can we walk in a way that we're sure-footed and will not stumble? I think Peter lays out exactly a plan and a protocol for how to do that. Now, the, the epistle of 2 Peter was written uh, to help us not stumble, but even more so, it was on how to make sure we were aware of how we resupply ourselves as we're on our march toward heaven. We don't get everything we need at one time by reading a Bible uh, verse at the very beginning of our faith and just launch out in the, into our walk and never need to be resupplied, never need to refocus, never need any more instruction. No, no, no. It, it's a constant process. So for this study, for today, we're going to look at the provisions for a sure-footed walk. Next week, we'll look at the practices, by the way. And then we'll look at the plausibility or how we actually get into a sure-footed walk. Now, a little background, the book of 2 Peter is one of the most overlooked books in the New Testament. Primarily deals with false teachers in chapter 2, how to deal with them, how to recognize them, how to confront them, how to avoid them, how to rebuke them, how to call them out. They use knowledge about spiritual things to trick and confuse people. And Peter says, here are their tricks. Here's what they're doing. It was basically Christianity 101 and knowing how to walk and stay upright. Now, the central theological issue in 2 Peter is the relationship between ethics and eschatology. Chapter 3 is all about the coming of the Lord and the end of the world and the summing up of all things. And Peter's saying, in light of what God, God is going to do in bringing his son back in the end, in light of that, you need to know how to live. And these features were closely related since false teachers were denying the future judgment. They were mocking, as 2 Peter says, where's the, the promise of his return? Problem was theological. Theolo theology proper, that is. They were doubting the character and the promise of God. Why? Because they were tricking people who, listen, were deficient in their knowledge and in their understanding of God. And this deficiency left them vulnerable to tripping up, being sidetracked, being distracted in their walk. So Peter writes to show them and us the infinite, indescribable, undeserved value that exists in understanding who God is through his word and how that applies to how we walk. Let's look at these provisions together. Five provisions for a sure-footed walk with the Savior. The first is obvious. It's salvation. Verses one and two. Salvation. Peter says, as he begins, Simon Peter, a bondservant, the term doulos, literally a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verses one and two are the outside of the envelope as Peter is writing to these Jews who were the Jewish Christians who were struggling. We discover the to and the from. Here's who I am, and this is who I'm writing to. Verse one in the middle, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's break that down a little bit. 
Peter says, I'm a slave, I'm a doulos. This is a word we don't like to use very much. And I think we've been duped a little bit, even by the, the contemporary argument that's existent right now, this extant, about uh, racial reconciliation. Now, the gospel should reconcile every Christian with anyone who's willing to reconcile with them. I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. But people are often quick to point out, well, slavery in the New Testament, Testament was not like slavery in the Old South. And they were right. Footnote, slavery in the Old South was horrific, horrific to take people from Angola, to, to bring them and rip them from their families. That's awful. No one can justify that. But often people say it wasn't, it was far worse than slavery in the days of Jesus. That's just not exactly an accurate statement. So when Peter says, I was a slave, everyone reading this, and when Paul said, I'm a slave, and we've kind of, kind of numbed the, the, the sharpness of that. We call it a bond servant. The term doulos means I'm a slave. I am owned as a person, get this, by another person. This person tells me what to do, how to live, what's right, what's wrong. They control and regulate every aspect of my life. Slaves were bought and sold and sent all over the ancient Near East by slave owners. And the debate of whether, which was worse, Roman slavery or Old South slavery, is not even a relevant discussion. It was bad when you were a slave. You had no rights, no privileges. Read the book of Philemon. And yet, Peter says, I'm a slave. He voluntarily says, I'm a slave of who? Of Jesus I'm one who's sent by him. That's part of his slavery to the Lord. I'm a slave and a sent one, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at the, the two part of the envelope. To those who've received a faith, it's the same kind as ours. The word received here, by the way, is not a very common theme now, a very common term rather. I wanna be as, as um, descriptive as I can without being inappropriate. But the word here used for those who have received the same faith as ours, as ours is um, typically one that refers to gaining something by lot. In other words, you get something because you, you don't deserve it. Not by chance, but the lot is in the hands of the Lord. Peter would say, this is, this is something I didn't get. It's not something you got either, except that the Lord gave it to you. You didn't get it on your own works. That's why he says in the next phrase, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We receive this because of the righteousness that God gave us in Christ. Remember, salvation is not just the remission of sins. That only brings us back to, to neutral. It's the addition of Christ's righteousness, which gives us the perfection that we need to enter into heaven. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him, Paul told the Corinthians. Now, very interesting. We have to look at this. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, little on the preposition in the Greek. You have to know this. 
If, if, typically, if you want to talk about two things, you would say uh, of this and of that. But if you said of this and that, it links them. And in the Greek, this is one preposition. It's basically saying the righteousness of our God and Savior who is Jesus Christ. An absolute statement of his deity. Verse 2, grace and peace, an oft-repeated greeting, as you know in Paul, grace and peace be overflowing, multiplied, spilling over to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter greets his reader with the typical prayer wish that Paul uses as well, but it's more than a wish, it's a lesson. Grace, he talks about, undeserved favor from God, Peace, a state of well-being, a state of satisfaction. Boy, if I see anything in my own life, anything in our culture, it's a desire and a need and a longing for grace and for peace. And the experience of grace and peace were to be multiplied, overflowing, and continuing. Resupplied, in other words. Not just given once. Speaking of total overwhelming satisfaction because of God's grace and peace. And the only conditions for experiencing this satisfying feature of God's gifts to our soul is in the next phrase. The experience of God's peace, the reception of God's grace are dependent on, look at what it says, the knowledge of God and of Jesus Grace and peace are acquired through what we know and learn and experience and are resupplied with related to the truth of God and the truth of Jesus. That's critically important. He's not saying know the ethics book, know the rule book, know all the do's, know all the don'ts. He's saying the knowledge, the understanding of God and the understanding of Jesus is what's going to give you what you need and want the most, which is grace and peace. Our philosophy, folks, is a person. Our philosophy of living is a person, not just behavior modification or trying harder or adjusting what we do or changing how we live. That's the caboose, not the engine. John 17, three states emphatically, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ you've sent. He defines living forever, eternal life as knowing God and knowing his son, the Lord Jesus. Paul, who had enjoyed many years of knowing God in Christ, much intimacy with Christ, comes to the latter parts of his faith in Philippians chapter three, verses eight and 10 says, oh, that I may what? Know him. Knowledge here is epignosis, a, a large, intimate, and most intimate knowledge. Now, we have to ask a question related to our bibliology study we've been doing for the last month. How do you obtain the knowledge of God which supplies the grace and peace that we need and want. How do you get the knowledge of God? The answer is in the Bible, the Word of God. And all that points to knowing and loving God in 
Christ. To know Christ is to know God. To see Christ is to see God. To believe in Christ is to believe in God. To receive Christ is to receive God. To hate Christ is to hate God. And to honor Christ is to honor God. The knowledge of God and Christ give us what we need most, which is salvation. It's the only way to be saved. There is no name under, which, under heaven by which anyone will be saved except the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Pascal said. It's not only impossible, but useless to try to know God without Jesus. Can you just flip over for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter four? I love this section of Paul's great chapter on the knowledge of God and understanding him in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about the battle of our mind. The battle of our minds is knowing God and knowing truth about God. You are in a battle right now in this sermon this morning. You were in a battle when you woke up this morning. You will be in this battle when you leave the church and all week you'll be in this battle. And here's the battle. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He's talking about the unbeliever. In whose case the God of this world, as Satan, has blinded the minds, there's the key target, the minds, the thinking, the understanding of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is The image of God. You see the linkage there between knowing Christ and knowing God? Four, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ, Christ Jesus as Lord. We find ourselves and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Verse six, here it is. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Christ. Can I just show you something as a pastor that's impressive on me? Turn the page for a second or look at verse 13. He speaks of himself. Having the same spirit of faith according to what was written. There's the scriptures. I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also Speak. Paul's saying the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. The pastor, the teacher, the leader, the parent, the discipler is always to have Christ in focus because he is the surest and most clear representation of everything we need to see and know about God. Paul told the Colossians, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. So it starts with salvation, knowing God through Christ, experiencing grace and peace. A second provision that we'll need on this sure-footed walk with the Savior, obviously you need salvation. You're not gonna be able to walk securely with him unless you know him through his son. Secondly is sufficiency. Now, Dr. Strand talked about this verse a few weeks ago. Let me highlight it for you briefly. Verse three, seeing or knowing that his divine power has granted to us What's the next word say? Can you say it with me? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
This is a monumental verse. It is pregnant with powerful living supply. Here we discover that the knowledge of God, get this, is the means of divine power. You'll experience God's power by knowing truth, knowing things that are true about God. Let's break it down. He says uh, uh, this will supply for us everything. I looked up the word everything in the Greek and you know what it means? Everything. For life, probably referring to eternal life, which begins with knowing Christ here extends into eternity. And godliness, that's our ethical ability to travel through this world and make the right decisions that honor God and that bless our lives. All that's required for imitating God, all that comes with being alive, is supplied for us to be godly. In other words, the knowledge of God is, get this, sufficient for anything and everything in your life. That was a massive statement. Let me say it again. The knowledge of God, the truth you know about God, is sufficient for anything and for everything in your life. And we will need help for life and godliness. Our church has so many wonderful benefits, too many for me to name in, in 10 worship services or 100. But there are also some dangers in our church and it's related to the issue that Peter brings up. And one of them is you become so familiar with hearing truthful things about God the knowledge of God, that you treat the knowledge of God and the truth about God as ordinary, common, no more useful than class notes. Your desperate need, my desperate need, is to learn how to listen, turn information into knowledge. Think about that. Turning information into knowledge. Information and knowledge aren't the same thing. You, you study information for a test and you typically forget it. Knowledge is something that you, by definition, you know. It doesn't pass off on a test, then it goes away. You know. Now, the word for knowledge is an important word for Peter in this letter. Uh, look, at it's in, it's in verse two. It's in verse five. Uh, you supply knowledge and it's repeated again in verse six. It's down in verse eight in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in chapter two, verse 20. It's in chapter three, verse 18. All to say this is an important concept for Peter. The knowledge of God, intimate knowledge. This knowledge is so intimate that it was used of a marital couple in their physical intimacy. It's something that you know and possess and had of intimate familiarity with. There is no trial, there is no trouble, there's no problem that any of us will ever face that cannot be solved by the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That's a huge statement. You might want to ask me to back it up. Listen, listen to what he said, what I just said. 
There is no trial, no trouble, no problem of our lives that cannot be solved by the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. I've quoted this to you before, but Morris Roberts has this amazing statement where he says, the degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends on his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. Think about that. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends on his spiritual ability to take the thought of God and interpose the thought of God between who we are and what we're doing and our anxiety so that God comes between us and what makes us anxious. He does this by his own glory, his moral excellence, his own is unique. What do you know about God? Boy, it'd be great to have a conversation with you and just say, just start talking and tell me what you know of God that's precious, that's special, that's motivating, that's life-altering, that's changing. What do you know about God that changes who you are and how you think? What do you know? Think about this. God is infinite. He's self-existing. He's without origin. It's what we call, he has aseity. Nobody invented God. He has always been and he will always be. He's immutable. He never changes. He doesn't act like the gods of the ancient Near East who were in good moods and bad moods, depending on whether you gave them grain offerings or not. He's self-sufficient. He has no needs but can supply all of ours. He's omnipotent. He can do anything and everything he desires. He's not limited by anything. Think about that. God has no limits to do what he wants to do. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. Past, present, future, external, internal, what can be seen, what no one sees, what can be thought. He knows it all. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, always. I can't think about the omnipresence of God without thinking about my cousin and my, my aunt who were in the car one day and my cousin asks my aunt, do you, um, is God everywhere? And Aunt Mary said, well, yes, Jimmy, he is. And he says, well, is he in our state? Yes, is he in our city? Yes, is, is he in the car? Yes, he's in the car. They were driving down the road. Mom is is God in the seat beside me? And she said, yes. It was quiet for a moment, and then she heard, gotcha! <laughs> and he wasn't joking. He actually thought, God's here. God is here. What a precious thought, because he's here. He's right there. He's always everywhere. And what does Psalm 139 say? That we seek darkness, so maybe he's not there or can't see. Wow. God's faithful. He is uniquely and unchangeably true. He's wise, full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. He's good. Psalm 119 says he is good and he does good. He's just. He never does what is wrong. He only does what is right. 
He's merciful, infinitely, unchangeably, compassionate and gracious when he looks at us. He's kind, he's gracious, infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. He's loving. He never changes his love toward us. He's holy, infinitely, unchangingly perfect, and he's glorious. He contains ultimate beauty and what's attractive to our souls. That's just like a few attributes of God. We are to know who God is and all that he is, that list I just read you, is in Jesus Christ and know him through him. Where do we get that information? In our Bibles. Can I say it? Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes. Yes, it is. The knowledge of God in Christ can only be found in the word of God. We need that provision if we're gonna be sure-footed. A third provision is security. Security, verse four, by these, he has granted to us his precious and his magnificent promises. Now, these promises are, are interesting. The most immediate promise is that of him being sufficient for everything. You see that? The most immediate promise that he's made is that all things pertaining to life and godliness are found in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. That's the promise he's made. So the magnificence of who he is is made in his revelation of who, himself, of who he is in the word. Wow, one of the battles, one of the ongoing battles in my own heart, and I know it's in yours, is the battle for spiritual stability which really is comprised of recognizing that the world constantly makes us promises it can't keep. Doesn't it? You are being led to believe promises every day through advertising, through billboards, through conversations, through hopes, certainly through the internet, probably not through Facebook. It's all lies, but that's for another time. You're being led to believe all sorts of things that are not sustainable as promises. It's gonna make you happy. It's gonna make you this and that. Only God's promises are precious and magnificent. And we're in the battle of our, for our faith to believe God's promises versus the world's promises. Lust Strong desire, we'll come to that in a minute, always desires something that will bring us satisfaction, but it's salt water to a thirsty man. It never satisfies. Oh, oh it, it might for a minute, but it never lasts. These promises are great because of the source. They're magnificent because of the cost to bestow. That's the cross we just looked at. What are these promises? Well, they're associated with everything that scripture gives to succeed in life and godliness. I just think of the promise that God will never leave me or forsake me. That, that, that one promise is enough to put everything else in perspective, isn't it? You ever thought about this? God made a promise to you. Think about this. Because he is infinitely interested in you. God is interested in you. And he knows everything and he's still interested in you. He's made you promises. 
Great promises, magnificent promises that will give you satisfaction and keep you from stumbling. So when you're reading your Bible, look for what he's said that's true that he will fulfill about himself, about our salvation. Salvation, sufficiency, security. His promises always come to pass. Number four, solidarity. This is a theological word that we, we don't talk about very much more. We, we usually use it in a political application. Solidarity is being in close proximity with someone, so much so that you're like them and they're like you. For by these, these promises, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that, here it is, by them, by these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? That is a massive promise. It doesn't mean you're gonna become God. It means you participate, you partake of the divine nature. How can that be? Because he's granted to us earlier his righteousness. We actually act, think about this. We actually act like God because God has given us his righteousness resident in our salvation. Word partakers is speaking of solidarity. It's, by the way, a shot against the false teachers who spoke of everything different than solidarity. God was way out there and we're way down here. I think of 1 Corinthians 6. The end paragraph of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, if you, if you end up committing adultery, if you end up violating your marriage vows, or if you end up being a, a, a fornicator, he says, you are actually, think about this. In your sexual participation with someone else, you are, this is what he says, causing Christ to be pulled along in that sin alongside you. Does he sin? Of course he doesn't sin. But he's saying that you're so intimately acquainted with Christ, he is with you in your pursuit of sin. And the point he's making is remember that you're so bound up in solidarity with Christ that that should motivate you not to participate in sin. I don't think we think often enough about our solidarity with Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. That's incredible. If we're gonna walk in a way that we never stumble, if we're gonna walk sure-footedly, we need to be saved. We need to understand our sufficiency. We need to apply our security and remember our solidarity and brings us to number five, sanctification. This provision is so important and frankly, we are in the next chapter of battle for sanctification in the history of the church. We saw one of them uh, when I was in uh, college. I remember uh, John MacArthur published a, 
a book on um, uh, the gospel according to Jesus. It set off a firestorm called the Lordship Salvation Debate. And the pushback, what MacArthur was basically saying is, you don't make Jesus Lord, he, he is Lord, right? No one makes Jesus Lord, he is Lord. And to come to him is to come as slaves to a master, as a servant is to a Lord, and we submit to him, we follow him, not perfectly, but in progression. It just is obvious. Those who say they know him will obey him, 1 John 2, 2 to 3. But people pushed back against that back in the, in the late 80s very hard and basically said, oh, no, 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 no. You accept Jesus. I'm not even sure of that language, accepting Jesus as if we're the ones in control. You accept Jesus as your Savior, and later you become a disciple, and then he becomes Lord. We're seeing another round of that attack in what's called the free grace movement today, which basically says God has given us so much grace, you don't need to worry about how you act, what you think. Grace is gonna cover it. Basically against what Romans 6 says, you know, how shall we who have been in sin still live in it? Sanctification is the process of becoming holy as a believer. And that's what he talks about in verse for at the very end, having escaped, gotten out of, escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Being delivered from the corruption of the world that is lust. Let's work backwards in this text. What is lust? Epithemia, strong desire, uncontrolled desire. It's a strong desire that can overpower you. And in 1 Thessalonians, this word for lust is used of our love for God. We have a strong desire. Our desire for God is so compelling that it makes us different. Whatever you desire, you will become like. These are worldly desires, he said. Lusts that are in the world. What do we lust after? We lust after people. We lust after things. We lust after power. We have strong desires for sex, for being known. And this, I gotta tell you, this passage, this last point about sanctification brings up an issue that I think is really needed in the church today. We don't talk very much anymore about worldliness. Escaping, what does it say? Escaping the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's escaping worldliness. We just don't talk enough about worldliness. And I think we don't talk about it enough because we think, well, if we talk about worldliness, I'm gonna have to live like I'm from another world, heaven. My citizenship is somewhere else. I've told you before how many times when I was a college pastor, I would have dating couples who would say, you know, we're dating, how, how far can we go physically, right? How far can we go? Can we hold hands? Can we interlock fingers? Can we hug on the shoulder? Can we A-frame hug? Can, and you can go on. And what that's doing is that's looking at sin, definite sin, and it's saying, how far can I go towards sin and be safe? This passage is talking about escaping from that path 
and saying, no, no, that's the wrong question. Not how far can I go, but how holy can I be? How far can I be away from sin? Escaping the corruption, the infiltration, the influence that is in the world and the way the world pulls us into worldliness is by our desires, by lust. You know, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and following, do not love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, how strong is this? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's a quick test. Lust of the eyes, materialism, what do you want more than God? Lust of the flesh, what do you want to experience with your visceral sensations, your body, whether it's sexual or eating or otherwise? And the boastful pride of life, being loved and adored by everyone, including ourselves. But what does he say? It's not of the Father. You can't love the Father and love those at the same time. The world is passing away, listen, and also its lusts, John says. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So how do we put all these provisions together and walk out of the building with them? It really comes down to one issue. Are you curious enough about God to know him and know him through his son, which ultimately means you read your Bible, care about what it says, and do something about what you've read? We always try to become knowledgeable about the things that make us curious. Tozer said, modern mankind can go anywhere, do anything, and be completely curious about the universe. But only a rare person now and then is curious enough to want to know God. Think about it this way. Adam and Eve were curious about the wrong thing and it cost them paradise. If you and I become curious about God, we gain paradise back. Listen, I'll tell you this because I love you. I love this body here at Mission Road more than I could ever say. But I fear that many of you might be trying to travel on the road to heaven being undersupplied without the divine provisions needed to supply you with what you need by God himself. And it all comes down to we're ignoring the great resource that he's given us to, the, to gain the knowledge of God, ultimately, which is in the face of Christ and knowing the gospel and our savior so that it actually makes a difference. Our worldview changes. The way we watch the news changes. The the movies we choose to go to changes. The television shows we choose to watch changes. The conversations we have change. The content of those conversations changes. The way we talk to our neighbor is transformed. The care we have for the people that we interact with at work is, is about their souls. You know, it, it, it's become a bit of a little mantra and a joke when we say, is this to read your Bible more sermon? And we say, yes. Isn't every sermon ultimately to draw us back to God through his word? But I just wonder, 
I just wonder, looking out at this amazing group of people, I just wonder if there are any who know it's right, who know it's valuable, who are convinced that God satisfies and equips through his word. You know that, you believe that, and your Bible stays closed most of the time between Sunday and Sunday. Your life will be defined by what you do with this book. This book, God's word, is determinative. And it's not enough to appreciate the fact that it's God's word. We have to apply that it's God's word. It's impossible as we looked at the first, first criteria without salvation, right? It's number one, salvation. Can I say something very uncomfortable? It might be that some of you, it might be that some of you are not attracted to God's word because you're not a Christian. Jesus said, many, not some, many, many will say to me on the last day, many more than not, will come all the way to the judgment, convinced that they're converted. And right at the portals of heaven will be turned around and sent to hell. Because we didn't know him, which is the focus of this passage. give a challenge like that and I wonder if some of you are thinking about somebody else who needs to hear that. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself or do you not recognize this about yourself? Here it is, that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. I'm convinced that we don't think about the gospel nearly enough in the context of the church. The gospel is not just the way in, it's the way through our lives. Is Jesus a part of your life or is he the point of your life? If that seems heavy, it's intended to be. <laughs> There's no second chance. No appeal when you die. Don't put off this decision to love and follow Christ till later because there may not be a later. I just wanna beg you, do the hard work of soul examination today.